We've been trying to to study together some of the most basic areas in Torah thinking and, and practice. And uh, for the last week or two we discussed the the roots of, um, <coughs> of consciousness or the roots of the structure of any, any element or any, any component of whatever exists in the mind or, or in the world. We discussed that line that we call the, <coughs> the dais, that, that uh, very difficult idea to put into words of inner wisdom. Last week we discussed the root of that. Let's, let's go down now and discuss the next point that is making up this line of what the structure of reality is and the structure of human consciousness is and that has to do with speech in the sources that talk about the structure of these things they divide up the functions or the parts if you like of the soul into five components. We won't have time now to go through all the five components, but that's to place what it is that we're talking about. The highest level is called Ratzon. We spoke about that last week. That is the level called desire, or will, or volition, the part, the, the, the source of outflow of any, of any expression. The thing that comes after that in the, in the sources that talk about these things is called Machshav. It means thought. Thought means the area of a thought at the moment of its flashing in is before, the, before you've had any time to, to grasp what that thought is for example when you, when you need the solution to a problem and you walk around frustrated because you cannot solve the problem and suddenly there's a moment of electricity when the solution hits you now, in that first moment you, you know you actually know all that there is to know about that idea, even though you haven't had time to work it out. It's a remarkable thing. That's called Makshava. It's the seed, it's the moment of explosion when, it, when the lightning flashes, and in that moment already you're aware that all the parts are there, even though there hasn't been time to see what the parts are. In fact, that's the happiness. It's, a, it's an ecstatic moment. When, when the solution to a problem is given, it's an ecstatic moment, even though you haven't possibly had time to see how it is the solution to your problem. But in that moment, you know that it's all there and it's all correct. Very, again, hard to put into words. Always the higher you are in the system, the harder it is to express in, in words or in detail. But that's, that's called Makshava. The next stage is called Hirur, which is the graphic part of thought. It's where thought comes down into its components, where, 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 the, where the parts become clear, <coughs> the dust settles, if you like, and you can see all its components. It's the plan dimension. It's called the female aspect of thought. It's not our subject tonight. The fourth level is called Dibur, that's speech. That's called speech. And the fifth level is where action results. That's called Maise, that way it comes down into the body. In some systems, they're divided up into two parts of speech called Kol and Dibur, which means voice, and then the words that the voice produces, depending on whether you're looking at the higher world or you're looking at the whole structure. And again, that, that five-part structure, although it's the root of, of all structure in the world, five issues that have ten components. It's a fascinating subject, not directly our subject tonight. I'd like to focus on, on this particular fundamental, which is the, <coughs> which is the area of, of, of translating that which is idea into practicality, and that's what we call speech. It's a very, very deep and complex idea. It's uniquely human. It's the root of all 
<coughs> spiritual understanding really and therefore let's try to devote some time examining this part of the structure and in order to make it practical that means we shouldn't just discuss ideas that are abstract and theoretical we should try to walk out of here with some idea that's translatable into, into, your, into your life, my life we should be able to go out and practice make a difference in some way and Judaism finds one of the very, very offensive things in, to, to the Jewish mind is the study of spiritual wisdom in pure abstraction. If it doesn't change you, it doesn't uh, sensitize you, if it doesn't, to put it in tonight's terms, if it doesn't come all the way down through the five parts and end up in what's called mindset, where you go out and your hands become different, <coughs> the actions of your hands become different, then, <coughs> then in fact in some ways it may have been better not to study. Because you, you're making a joke or a, a mockery really of what the wisdom is if you don't if you don't bring that into action and into practice. So let's, let's try to focus on this subject with a particular tangible or practical aspect, and that is the mitzvah of guarding speech, particularly in the area of Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara, Lashon hara the evil tongue. Right? What that means is, well, we have to discuss it, and I hope to share with you some of the practicalities just to whet your appetite this evening. <coughs> that you should study more on your own, but this is the mitzvah of being careful not to say things that are negative, not to say things that are negative about other people that in fact are true. Now, this is a particularly sharp application of the mitzvah of God in speech. There are many others. There are many others. One other very sharp application is that it's forbidden to say things that are meaningless. It's a particularly severe spiritual transgression to, to, to use words that are meaningless. The Gona Vilna says there's a special punishment, there's a special Gehenna, a special dimension of suffering when the soul leaves the body for words that you said that were not bad, they were just silly. Just a waste of time, just wasted words. Energy that is, that is thought translated into expression that really means nothing. And that's uh, when we've thoroughly terrified ourselves with tonight's subject, we can go on and <coughs> <coughs> paralyze ourselves with fear about that. But let's... Let's see how far we can get with the, the, the concept <coughs> of Lush and horror, <coughs> which is not saying things that are meaningless, <coughs> it is Can't hear this? No. <coughs> and everybody pick up your chair and move one step forward. Can you do that? to speak a bit louder. Let's, let's try that again. You know, if you switch that off, they'll be able to hear. Do they want to be hot or do they want to hear? I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> cool. Hot, cool, whatever. Let's try again. What, I, what I'd like to try and cover this evening is enough of the practicalities of this mitzvah that we can leave here understanding a little bit about what it is <coughs> and also try to study <coughs> the depth of it so we understand a bit of the spiritual core of this subject, which is really a marvelous area that touches literally on everything else. 
let me try to convey first of all the seriousness and the depth, the enormity of this area by posing certain questions. Then we'll step back for a, for a while and look at the practicalities. Let's try and study some of the, the laws, the halachas of this area together. And hopefully there'll be time to answer some of the questions that we, that we pose. First of all, a brief definition. Lashon Hara means saying something that is negative about someone that's true, not lies. In English they translate this as slander. Right? Slander means when you, when you libel, you say something negative about someone, and in, in English, in English law, and in Western law in general, that's regarded as negative or actionable in law only if what you said is false. Right? Is this correct? If you say something negative, if they write in the newspaper, something negative, they defame someone, they libel someone. What happens in court is the court battle when the person sues for libel or defamation of character, what happens is the court case becomes an attempt to prove that what they said is actually true. Is this right? And if they can substantiate that what they said about this person is true, then of course they, they're fine. In Jewish law, if what you said is true about the person, that's when you really get it. <laughs> that's when you really get it. Lashon Hara means saying something negative about somebody that is true. That's what you're not allowed to say. Saying something about someone that's bad, that's false, another problem. It's got, it's got additional severity, all kinds of other problems. That's called Moetzi Shemra, bringing about a bad name. You're giving someone a name that is unjustified, that is bad when they don't deserve it. It's another whole problem in the Torah. But Lashon Hara specifically when you say something about somebody that's 100% accurate. You say they get angry easily. And they get angry easily. That absolutely prohibits one of the most serious prohibitions in the Torah. It can be worse. I mean, they say, if you say, if you say that the rabbi can't sing, and that the chazan doesn't give a good rosha, that's Lashon Hara. If you say that the rabbi doesn't give a good rosha, and that the chazan can't sing, that's murder. That's murder. <laughs> but, that's what it got nothing to do with slander or libel. It's, it's saying, bringing into expression that which is negative about, about someone, about people, which is specifically true. That's what you may not say. <coughs> now, you can't say it, you can't indicate it, and hopefully this evening we'll try to study just a little bit of the, the practical side of this, of this mitzvah, of this prohibition. <coughs> but before we do that, before we look at the practicality, let me share with you some very surprising information about this mitzvah. Then we'll try to backtrack into what speech is and where this fits in the, in the deeper system. <coughs> What's very surprising about this is that there are lots of prohibitions in the Torah. Right? There are lots of prohibitions in the Torah. There are 365 negative commandments. Yeah, you're not allowed to steal, you're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to eat certain... There are, there are 365 negative commandments in the Torah. And Lashon Hara is one of them. In fact, the Chavetz Chaim demonstrates very beautifully at the beginning, beginning of his famous work on this, on this subject that when you speak Lashon Hara, or in fact when you listen to Lashon somebody tells you something negative and you listen, you could transgress up to more than 30 commandments at the same time. There's many commandments, many things you transgress when you hear or speak something negative about someone. Not only the transgression of actually saying the negative words, there's all kinds of other things that, that, that happen at the same time. But nevertheless, it's a, it's, it's a mitzvah or it's a category of mitzvahs that are negative in the Torah. And yet we find almost unbelievable statements about the severity of this prohibition. This is very, very frightening because... First of all, it has a severity and an enormity that goes much beyond many other transgressions. And secondly, because it's almost impossible to avoid. That means when you read that you're not allowed to murder, most of us, Baruch Hashem, don't have a problem. Right? A, a real problem. I mean, more than a couple of times, I hope. You know, you, you, 
<laughs> but Lashon Hara, when you say something negative, it's almost unavoidable. It's almost unavoidable. The two things that are almost unavoidable, and that's why we finish Shmon Esrei, we say, Protect my tongue from speaking this problem of Lashon Hara. And my lips from speaking that which is false. I once asked my Rebbe, why do we phrase, why do we ask for these two particular things? And secondly, why do we ask for help in these two particular... Why do you ask him to stop you from doing a sin? That's your responsibility. Again, we don't, are you with me? We don't finish Monastery and then run through a whole list of all the sins in the Torah and ask for help not doing them. Why do we single out these two? And he told me a remarkable principle. It's because these are so easy that they're almost unavoidable. To say things that are not accurate, to say things that are a little exaggerated or not 100% true, it's almost unavoidable. Therefore, you need special help in this area. And equally... To say things about people that are not complimentary, that are, that, are, that are true. Good observation you made about somebody that's not complimentary is almost unavoidable. Almost unavoidable. Even if you refuse to speak, it could be Lashon You know that somebody says, what do you know about so-and-so? And you say, I'm not going to speak Lashon Hara. You just, you just did it. You just did it. Right? That's or you, you raise an eyebrow. You know, what do you know about somebody? You go, hmm. You know? <laughs> That's 100%. That's 100% lost nara. Even if you say something ambiguous, you're not allowed to say something. Yeah. It's an extreme thing. It's very difficult to avoid. It's got enormous consequences, enormous punishments. It's a very serious area. Now, what we need to understand is this. If you go through the statements that the sages make about this commandment, they're almost incredible in terms of their enormity. There are statements in the, in, the, in the Talmud that indicate that this thing is much worse than many others. And we need to understand why is it worse than things that would naturally seem worse. I'll give an example. There's a place in the Talmud that says that speaking Lashon Hara, that means you're saying something about somebody that's 100% true, but they would not like you to say it, is worse than idolatry, immorality and murder. Now, there are no exaggerations in the words of the sages. There are no exaggerations. They don't get, you know... There's no, there's no hype. There's no exaggerations. In our tradition, in, Torah, in, the, in, the, in the oral law, in all of Torah, things are 100% literal, 100% accurate. Of course, it means in a certain dimension. It doesn't mean in an absolute sense. It means that in a particular, from a particular perspective, embarrassing someone in public, for example, it says is equivalent to murder. It's equivalent to killing someone. If you embarrass them to the extent that the color drains from their face, let's say. It's equivalent in a certain sense. This is equivalent or worse than all three cardinal sins. You know, sexual immorality, idolatry, and murder are the three things that you're not allowed to do even on pain of death. Even if your life is threatened, you may not do them. Other things, if your life is threatened, you do. You have to break Shabbos or eat unkosher food or anything else in the Torah. You desecrate it in order to save a life. The priority of saving life comes above virtually anything else. But those three things you may not do if you have to commit immorality or idolatry, which needs full explanation. Or murder, you can't do that to save your life. And this statement we have is that saying something negative, so that person gets angry easily. And it's 100% true. Is worse than these three cardinal sins. Why? Secondly, there's, there are historical accounts of generations of Jews who were punished for what they did. Historically, we know that the prophets came to admonish the Jewish people for, for failing and for falling. We find that there are generations who are guilty of the most heinous crimes, generations of the, uh, in the history of the Jewish people, 
And because they weren't guilty of Lashon Hora, they weren't punished. And there were generations that were guilty of lesser things, but because there was backbiting, you know, there was saying negative things about each other, <coughs> they were punished and decimated. <coughs> what is it about this mitzvah that holds the key? Put even more strongly, this, this is almost literally incredible, listen carefully, because this is a secret that, understanding this secret can not only change your life, but it could save your life. Literally. There are statements in the sages that say, not, you probably won't believe me, but listen anyway. There are, there, there are statements in the, in, the, in the oral law that say that if you commit every sin imaginable and you don't ever speak Lashon Hara, you won't be punished. <laughs> but if you speak Lashon Hara, then you'll be punished for it and for all the other things that you did. Now, what's going on? First of all, you should understand you don't get away with anything. It's a world that's built on din, there's justice, there's no getting away with anything, you answer for everything that you do. You don't answer for it, you are that, you are that. You suffer the consequences of what you do because that's who you are. Our concept of the next world, as we've explained many times, discussed many times together, is not that it's a place where things happen to you. It's a place where you simply are what you are, and what you've done that's negative and painful, you experience. In simple English we call it punishment, but it's much deeper than that. So, but what's being indicated here, and I, without going into too much detail, there are different methods and different dimensions of suffering the pain of what you've affected. What's being said here is that a person who never speaks Lashon Hara will be, the justice will be seen to in a very kindly way. The way it's put in certain sources is that Hashem Himself deals with you. That's a very rare thing. That He Himself will deal with you. The way it normally goes, we'll have to explain this in much more length, much more detail, is that the normal way that justice is meted out in the spiritual world is through certain agencies and certain mechanisms of justice. The way the sages put it is that you get put in a courtroom that functions exactly like a human courtroom. It says, That means the, the, the judgment in the higher world is exactly like a court case that takes place in this world. We'll have to discuss this in detail. It's a marvelous thing to understand. But what, one, of the, one of the meanings of the statement is that the system is set up in such a way that the retribution is made from the damage to the system itself. As if to say that he remains above it. There are very rare occasions where, where Hashem himself, in a, in a personal sense, gets involved. <coughs> On the positive side, it says that <coughs> all that he does in the world is done through agencies. Through, through The English word angel is, is a hopeless translation. But malachim, whatever that is, let's use the word angels for now. Certain agencies or emanations, except three things. <coughs> The, rain, the rainfall, when the rain falls, he does it himself. When a child is born, he opens the womb himself. And when the graves open in the resurrection, that is done personally. He holds the keys to those three things, it says. The others are all done through devolution of authority through, through the channels. What's being said here is that punishment or effect or sensing, going through, experiencing the negativity of what you've done, through the channels, which are much more severe, because there's no, there's no credit given, it's exactly accurate, that if you don't speak Lashon Hara, you won't get that. Now, this boggles the mind. What does that mean? What, 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 what is going on here? Why is it that I can do anything I wish, and there'll be a certain, certain for purpose of this discussion, a certain escape. But I say one bad word about somebody, and then I get slammed for that and everything else. Why is this the key? Why not murder? Why not immorality? Why not all kinds of things? That's what we have to understand. Why is this the key? Why does this hold the key to one's existence in the next world? 
You know, the Chavetz Chaim, who was alive during this century, there's still people, around, still people alive who knew him. I personally met and spoken to people who, who knew him well. Chavetz Chaim died in 1933. He devoted a large part of his great, enormous mind and energy to publicizing and teaching and sensitizing the subsequent, his generation and ours, to this mitzvah of Lashonara. <coughs> right? Enormous amount of energy put into it. He wrote a, a classic, the classic definitive work on this mitzvah. <coughs> the Chavetz Chaim, in fact, is known for it. The word Chavetz Chaim means in Hebrew, it's taken from the verse in the, in the in Dilim that says, who is the person who wants life? Chavetz Chaim means desires life. He who guards his tongue and his lips from speaking these things. He became known as that. His great work is called <coughs> Chavetz Chaim. It's essential reading, by the way. After this discussion, you have to... If your Hebrew is not good enough, it's been well translated, it's been adapted, there are simple versions of it, there are, there are simple versions with practical examples, how to handle this mitzvah. A couple of years ago, there's even a pictorial version that came out. You can be illiterate and study it. <laughs> there's a comic book version. There's a, it's excellent. I think it's called Who Wants Life? Have you seen it? It's called... It's excellent. They're very good books that digest this into... You know, no matter how semi-literate you are, uh, and that pictorial one is excellent, by the way. It's excellent. It goes into a lot of detail, and it actually depicts the scenarios that are problematic and how you have to cope with them. He wrote a whole book in two parts. The first part is Lashonor, and the second part is Rechilis, which is very closely related. Rechilis is tail-bearing. Right? You're not only forbidden to say something negative about someone, you're forbidden to say something that isn't even necessarily negative to someone else who will dislike them because of that. That means you tell someone that so-and-so did or said something about you when you know that it will cause friction or enmity uh, between these two people. You may not bear that tale from A to B. As many of the same laws and the same parameters and the same exceptions as Lashon Hara, both of those ideas are expressed. He, he goes through... The, he, that is the definitive and classic work on this subject <coughs> and it is readily available. It's something that's... I, I hesitate to say this, but you don't even have to be religious. Yeah, even if you haven't yet sort of fully taken on Shabbos properly the way you, you know you should. And, if, and even if your, your kashras is, you know, you, you're not yet drinking only Chalav Yisrael. You know, if that's your... <laughs> 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 Nevertheless, you don't want to say bad things about people. Why do you want to do that? Don't tell me you're not religious yet. You're not religious yet, so... Fine, so you're not religious yet, so you'll get there. <laughs> but uh, that means you have to walk around saying bad things about people, especially when the consequences are so enormous. It's a good place to start. <coughs> the Chavetz Chaim, why did he devote so much energy to this mitzvah? There's hundreds of mitzvahs in the Torah that the Jewish people desperately need. He knew he was living in a generation that is the lowest that's ever been. We've fallen away from almost everything. The majority of the Jewish people on earth don't even know what their obligations are. Don't even know that there are such things. So why did he choose to focus on this? What did he see in this that obviously is the key to the pre-Messianic age? He himself was a, was a, was a stupendous expert at this. I mean, he went on record, he was went on record as saying that he, that he personally could <laughs> say about himself. <clears throat> that ever since he reached sentience, ever since he was old enough to know anything, he never said a word, he had never said a word, ever, negative about anyone else. His wife was a great dad. She used to avoid going to shul. She said, Alain is the Neshama rain. When you're on your aunt, then you stay. You get into discussions, it's... You shouldn't talk about other people. You should not have discussions about other people. You talk about someone else, it's almost unavoidable. 
Do you know one of the laws of, of, of uh, Lashon Hara is you're not even allowed to say good things about someone in the presence of someone else who may say yes, but. You can't do that. You have to be very careful. Not only negative. You have to be very careful. The Chavetz Chaim himself, on one occasion, perhaps this story sums it up. One year on Purim, they were in the Chavetz Chaim's house. He must have been an old man at the time, in Radin. And one of the boys, one of the yeshiva boys, one of the best boys in the yeshiva, was drinking. Just Purim, they were drinking. And he became a little, a little looser with his, you know, expression, perhaps, than, than he might have under normal circumstances. And he was a bit forward, he became a bit forward. <coughs> what happened was, <coughs> he kept badgering the Chavetz Chaim. This young, young Yeshiva Bokh, he said to him, Rebbe, I want you to promise me a share in the next world equivalent to yours. The Chavetz Chaim kept ignoring him. And he, as, he, as, he, as he was drinking, right, he, he kept saying, I want you to promise me, I long for, and I want you to promise me, that I have a share like yours in the next world. The Chavetz Chaim saw that he was not <coughs> completely sober, and he ignored him. Finally, they got up to walk through for the Suda, you know, the pouring, the pouring meal. They walked through into the room where they were going to have the meal, and he blocked the door. He blocked the door. He stood in the doorway, and he said, Rabbi, I'm not letting you picture the scene. Chavetz Chaim was a, was a glowing sage. He stood in the doorway, and he said, I'm not letting you through. He said to his own Rabbi, I'm not letting you through until you promise me a share in the world to come, equivalent to yours. So Chavetz Chaim said the following thing. He said, if you take on that from now on you will never say anything negative about anyone else. You'll guard this mitzvah. That you'll accept, you'll never say any comment that is slighting or negative about anyone else. Who knows what share I have? But I can guarantee you that whatever share I have in the next world is due to the fact that since I grew to awareness, I've never said a word ever about anyone else that's negative. And I can promise you that if you take that on, you'll have the same share as me. They say that this young man stood there, he became sober, he thought about it for a long time and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He knew what a serious... He knew that's a... This, we're talking about a generation of people who learned Torah who were serious about it. People had some depth and some sense of commitment. He knew that to take on a thing like that is not a, that's not a simple thing. To take that on... And after a while, he hesitantly stepped aside. And the Chavetz Chaim went through. And some people say that as the Chavetz Chaim went through, they heard him say under his breath, Here you see a man standing at the gates of heaven and refusing to go in. Now, this story needs understanding. Why did the Chavetz Chaim pick out this mitzvah? He could have said Torah learning. Torah learning is bigger than anything. He could have said all sorts of things. Why did he say to this young man, all you have to do is take on that you will never say anything negative? That's the key. Why? Why? Let's attempt to... I mean, the secret here, in case it's not clear to you, the secret here is that you regard this carefully. You guarantee the share in that world... And you will be not, you will not, you escape punishment for things that you deserve. At least a certain severity of punishment. That's worth understanding, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Let's try and understand. First of all, what are the practical, what are we talking about in practice? Let's not forget to cover the practicalities. But again, I urge you, you need to study it for yourself, perhaps with a, with a chabrusa in, in a, or in a group or at least read up on the subject. <coughs> it's not a complicated subject to understand. And the practical details are easily, easily assimilated and easily begun at least to be put into practice. Let's try and get the mitzvah clear, as clear as we can in a brief overview and summary. And I'll try and share with you some of the amazing 
spiritual background that hopefully will give a little, little understanding to this area. Lashonara again means saying something that is negative, that's true. That's what it is. When people tell you, most people who have heard of this mitzvah, the classic mistake they make is thinking that if it's true, it's not Lashonara. You say, you're not allowed to say this, but it's true. I saw it with my own eyes, it's true. That's fine. That's Lashonara. Right? That's not, let's get that clear. It applies to speaking or indicating with your body or body language or writing or anything that is an expression. It doesn't... It is... Even ambiguous things, like for example, the example the Chavetz Chaim gives, is someone says to you, where can I find a light? So you say, go to so-and-so's house, they're always cooking. That's ambiguous. It may mean they're always cooking because they're feeding waifs and strays and they're always feeding hungry people. Or it may be they're people who eat all the time. <laughs> right? You're not allowed to say that. Since it could be taken negatively, you can't say that. Right? Even that you can't say. There are exceptions. There are exceptions that are extremely important to understand. When you may speak Lashonara, in fact when you're obliged to, and when you may listen. Listening, normally, is just as forbidden as speaking. Right? It says that Lashonara kills three people. The one who speaks, because of the prohibit the sin. The one who listens, because they're guilty. And the one about whom you speak, whose reputation is being damaged. Because you've said this thing to this person, they may be unemployable now. They may not get married. They may not know what will happen to this person, because of what you've said about them. You may not say it, you may not listen. The listener transgresses exactly the same prohibition as the one who speaks. You may not listen. Right? What should you do when someone speaks Lashonara to you? So there mitzvah, there's a mitzvah. You have to be, you have to be, you have to, you have to know. You have to know. First of all, it says <coughs> you're not allowed to listen. What happens if it's difficult to avoid? Right? Your family, for example, right? You... You are knowledgeable about these things. You come to study. Let's say family members are not yet so knowledgeable. Right? You sit down to dinner. <coughs> they start talking about Aunt Daisy <coughs> or whoever it is they talk about. What should you do? The wise way to handle it, just from practical experience, is not to start criticizing, especially your family at that time. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is at a time when it's not an issue. When it's not an issue, right? They sit there quietly at the table like your family normally does. <laughs> you... You pipe up and you say, you know, folks, I went to this very interesting talk this other evening where we learned about this thing called Lashonara. They all say, oh, what is that? You give them a whole speech about Lashonara, then they become aware that you are sensitive. And once a person's been sensitized to this, it's very difficult to speak Lashonara. You know, once you know it's forbidden, it's such, it's such an offensive thing to, do, thing to do that when you catch yourself, it's, it's usually quite clear. Incidentally, <clears throat> quite apart from any religious motivation, Quite apart from any, if I had to speak to someone, you asked me to explain this mitzvah to a non-Jew, or to somebody who has got no interest or knowledge about mitzvahs. I personally, it's my humble personal opinion, I think that you can understand this mitzvah without any reference to, to the spiritual, I think you can understand this mitzvah very deeply on a purely practical level. Namely, if I sit down with you for a cup of coffee, right, and, and you lean across very confidentially and you look around and you tell me some fat, juicy piece of, <laughs> gossip about someone else right? you block a relationship with me immediately because it's absolutely patently obvious to me 
that if you prepare to tell me something like that about them, you're going to tell the next person about me. How can I open up to you? How can I have a relationship with you? Isn't it obvious? If you prepare to share this with me, that you know that person wouldn't like, that I don't know, that is humiliating or negative or what about that person, right? You're getting pleasure sharing with me that information about them. How could I possibly be open with you about me? Because it's absolutely certain that the next person you speak to, you look around confidentially, you make sure I'm not there, you'll tell them about me. So you kill relationships, you kill any openness. How can you do that? There should be such a humiliation in doing that. You should be so ashamed when you lean across the table and you say something negative about someone else. You know, if, if there's such a two-faced... It's quite obvious that you don't want them to say to a third party what they know about you. So, that's not why we do it. We do it because it's a mitzvah. But if you need practical understanding, surely that should be good enough. What happens when somebody speaks Lashon to you and you cannot avoid listening? You can't avoid it. You're traveling at 35,000 feet across the Atlantic and it's very bumpy. And every time you try and leave, they keep pushing you down into your seat and pull this belt up. And you're sitting next to this very vociferous character who tells you, Lash from takeoff to landing. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? So first of all, dominate the conversation. That's what you do. You, you speak from beginning to end. That's what you do. Whether they speak or not. You... When, when this lady starts speaking, Lashon you say to her, Madam, I wonder if you mind if I just chaza my Gemara with you. And then you... <laughs> You go over a whole Masechda Makas from beginning to end, page after page, and so they think you're a little strange. So they think you're strange. What's if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, be sick in our lap. What's the difference? The Gemara says that uh, if, that's, if that's, all of that fails, the Gemara actually says, you know, the Gemara actually, you know why human fingers are shaped this way? Because they fit in your ears. That's what the Gemara says. <laughs> There's another Gemara that says, you know why you have this little piece of skin here? What does this do? I can assure you medically it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help you here. The Gemara says it's easily folded up and stuck in your... <laughs> that's what it's there for. If all that fails, if all that fails, you're forbidden to believe what you're told. You're forbidden to believe what you're told. For example, when you have to listen, let's say you're a therapist. <coughs> you're a psychiatrist or a therapist or a counselor. <coughs> or there are circumstances in which you're obliged to listen, and as I'll try and explain to you those, those situations, then you have to listen. You may not believe what you're told. You may believe that it's possible. You don't have to disbelieve it. That means, you know, a person tells you that firsthand they know a certain thing about someone else. And it's a very negative and worrying thing. The Chavetz Chaim writes that you may store away the knowledge and take protective action when necessary, but you may not conclude in your mind that it's true since you never witnessed it. You have to keep an open mind. That's what you have to do. There's another mitzvah in the Torah of judging people favorably. No matter how awkward and how, how extreme you'd have to be to explain their actions, Neg- you know, favorably. There's an explicit mitzvah in the Torah to do that. And therefore, when you hear something negative about someone, you have to rationalize to yourself, even though it's extreme, 
<coughs> that actually, that's not negative. Many times in life, by the way, you'll make a negative judgment about someone, you'll find you were wrong. You'll find you actually were wrong. I heard someone recently was traveling by air to... It happened to be from Johannesburg to Tel Aviv. And this person happened to be sitting on the... I'll just give you an example. I mean, there are many books that have been written about judging people favorably just to show how wrong you can be. This person was traveling on the plane and in the next row was a rabbinic-looking character. I mean, a man who looked very rabbinic. He really was dressed like a rabbi. He looked extremely <coughs> orthodox, you know, and, and, and rabbinic. And this person knew about... You know, was an observant Jew. And they noticed that he wasn't doing anything an observant Jew is supposed to do. That means they looked carefully at this man and they noticed that when all the Jews, when all the Frum people got up to Dublin, they made a minion, a lot of Jews, that they went to the back, he didn't, do, he didn't join them. That in public, he flagrantly ignored, you know, that means they got up to make a minion in Dublin and he carried on sitting in his chair reading. He wasn't even reading anything Jewish. He was reading completely secular material in public. He didn't join the minion when they went to Dublin. And this person was getting very upset. How can you do that? I mean, they themselves weren't that religious. But when somebody looks very, you know, like a representative of the Jewish people, you know, very rabbinic, and in public they flagrantly break everything. And then they were served the meal, and they watched carefully this man eat without saying a bracha. He ate without making a blessing. He never washed his hands, he never made a motzi, never made any blessing. He ate the food, he never made a blessing, he never made... And this person was getting very incensed. Very incensed. And many times during the flight... He restrained himself from going over and giving him a real... And one thing after another happened, the whole flight like this was a real disgrace. Then what happened was, that when they got to Tel Aviv, and they were offloading the plane, the person decided they're going to go over this person and just tell them they couldn't let such a thing go. And they made up this whole speech about how, what a disgrace this person had been in public. And as they walked over to him, they saw his father's coffin being unloaded from the plane. He was an Oynan coming to bury his father, and you're not allowed to do mitzvahs when you're an Oynan. Okay, you may not make blessings, you're not allowed to daven, you're not allowed to do... He's coming to bury his father in Israel. And he was observing the law perfectly. You have to be careful before you judge people. So you're allowed to listen when you have to, but you have to conclude that although it's possible, it's not true. It takes control and it takes power of mind, that's what you have to do. What are the exceptions in Lashonar? When, this applies to Rechilis as well. Okay? What are the exceptions when you may listen, in fact when you're obliged to, or when you may, being a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist, that, that needs very sensitive handling. I'm not, this is an, a specialist area. I'm not going to go now into those details, although there are circumstances during, during which one may and even uh, <coughs> is obliged to listen. The, um, <coughs> the classic exceptions when you may speak Loshanari, in fact you're obliged to, okay, are as follows. Again, we can't go exhaustively into it now, because I'd like to save time for some of the, the background, which is fascinating. But at least, at least an overview of the practicality. When may you say something negative about someone is to prevent harm. What's known in halacha as to'eles. That means there's a benefit that will accrue from your saying this that is essential for you to say. For example, let's say you know something about someone, and it is negative, and someone else doesn't know it, and they will be harmed because they don't know it. For example, they're planning to marry this individual, and you know that they've got a serious criminal record, or they've got a very serious medical problem, or a psychiatric problem, or uh, some real serious, you know, they're married already, or um, <laughs> twice, you know, at the same time. I mean, 
then you have to tell the person, in fact, the Rav Chaim writes, even if they do not ask you, you have to tell them. It's not only if they ask you. You have a mitzvah to tell them, right? To prevent them from, if you're standing outside a, a store, a shop, and you know that this shop is selling um, false, yes, it's selling goods that are, yes, they, they are counterfeit, they, they're labeled wrongly, right? They're not the, the genuine item. And uh, someone walks in to buy. You have to tell the person, you have to tell the person that you have to know your snap. You have to know what you're doing. If, for example, they're charging more than some other place, that doesn't justify your telling them. If they're allowed to charge more, even though the person could get it cheaper elsewhere, that's not, that's not, they're not, that's not illegal. Unless it's a staple. In Jewish law, there's certain things you may not charge more than a sixth above the market price. You have to know what those things are. But if it's not one of those staples, they're charging what they're charging. That's not, but if they're doing something that is dishonest, that is damaging to the... Then you have to tell the person. Or that someone wishes to employ someone. And you know, again, that they have some serious problem of honesty in their previous employment, that may be an ongoing thing, etc., then you're obliged to tell the potential partner or employer or marriage partner, etc., you're obliged to tell them. However, however, and this is the part that has to be very well understood, before you say it, you have to cover a number of criteria that are very, that are exquisitely <coughs> sensitively tuned, and you have to check that each of these is in place before you do it. Are, are you with me? Again, you know someone about you know something about someone, okay? Serious problem. And someone else asks you, you know, I'm thinking of marrying so and so or becoming engaged to them. Do you know anything about them that I should know? And you in fact know something serious about the person. Before you tell them, before you tell this person, you have to check a long list of criteria that have to be in place before you do it. And they're as follows. Uh, perhaps not exhaustively, but some of them are as follows. One. <coughs> The thing has to be serious enough that it might change their mind. If it's a minor thing, you may not say it. Let's say, for example, they want to marry someone, and you know that they're not a very strong person. They, 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 I don't know, they get flu often. I don't know, they, they're sort of weak in their constitution. You're not allowed to say that. That's not a serious enough deficiency. All you're doing is putting a problem into the person's mind that's not serious enough to make any difference in the situation. So why say it? Secondly, you have to know the, the issue firsthand. You have to have been witness to it yourself. If you heard it from someone else, that's absolutely out of the question. You can't say it. can't repeat something that's hearsay. You can only say it if you have first-hand knowledge that, that you were once personally engaged to that person or employed them or whatever, and you personally witnessed this thing, then you have to say it. Thirdly, you have to be sure that you get no vindictive pleasure out of saying this thing. That means, if, let's, let's say, for example, they, they, they cheated you, they harmed you in business. And you are now going to tell this prospective partner about it, and that will cancel the deal. And you will get pleasure out of it, because there will be retribution, there will be what we call the comma, right? That is, um, revenge. You'll be taking revenge on this. You know, it's a Torah prohibition to take revenge, right? You know that. And to bear a grudge. You may not... <coughs> Do you know what the differences between... Do you know what the unlucky differences? Taking revenge is... Can we discuss this once? Taking revenge is where you do someone to them what they did to you. Yes, someone says, can I please borrow your lawnmower? And uh, you say to your neighbor, can I borrow your lawnmower? And he says, no. Next week he comes over to you and says, can I borrow yours? If you say no, you're taking revenge. You're doing to him what he did to you. You're not allowed to do that. Bearing a grudge, right? Natira is when you go to your neighbor and you say, can I borrow your lawnmower? And he says, no. Next week he comes over to you and says, can I borrow yours? And you say, sure. 
I'm not like you. <laughs> That's, you're not taking revenge, but you reminding yeah, you that's called you may not do either of those. So when you when you say when you tell someone something negative about someone else, you have to be sure that you're not getting any vindictive pleasure out of it. It rise above that. You have to tell them only because you're preventing the damage that would otherwise occur, not because you want to get your own back on this individual. You have to be very careful about that. Fourth, you have to be absolutely sure that you're not exaggerating at all. And that's extremely difficult. People find it extremely difficult to be state, stick to the raw facts. One of the reasons people find it difficult is because when you feel very self-righteous about preventing this person from being damaged, you don't only see it as your job to transmit the facts, you also see it as your task to convince them not to do it. But that's not your job. That's their problem. They have to decide. Your job is to make the facts known. Your job is not to convince them. Is this clear? Your job is to simply say, I was once, I was once employed that individual, they were dishonest, and that's all. Should you employ them, convince you not to, exaggerate? Not at all. You say the facts exactly as they are, no less and no more, that is what you have to do. Fifth, I'll, I'll, hold on a second. Fifth, we'll take a couple of questions on this in case something's not clear, it's a very important area. Fifthly, you must be sure that the damage that will accrue to the person about whom you're speaking would be no more than would be their legal due. Do you understand? For example, let's say you're standing outside a shop and you know that they're selling dishonestly, you know, they, they mislabel products and they're not, you know that. And someone else is walking in and you say to this person, um, they are being dishonest and they're selling false goods. Before you say that, what will the consequences be? What will this person do? What will this person do? If they will only do less or equivalent to what the law requires, what are based in, a Jewish court of law would impose on this person, that's fine. But if they would do more, right? Let's say they would go further, they get very upset. Let's say this person walking in has got certain uh, <coughs> Sicilian connections. <laughs> and you know that if you tell them what they're doing in this store, the next day that, thing, that store will be raised to the ground. Right? Which is much, and maybe human life will be... Yeah. You better be very careful that you satisfy all these criteria. Are you sure about it? Did you see it yourself? Is it accurate? Is it significant? There's another criterion as well. Could you achieve this some other way without saying no, no? If you could achieve the same end another way, you may not say it. There's a list of criteria that have to be covered. What are the questions? Is something not clear? What about if uh, you're asked for uh, an opinion about a person? An opinion. An opinion about a person. That's an excellent. Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's not. It's not simple. Most authorities say that where the structure of the situation... And the question here was... Did you hear the question? What about when you ask for an opinion about someone? It's not a fact of something harmful that you know. You ask for a professional opinion, like a reference. Many authorities say that if the situation allows it... For example, let's say some companies employ people to advise them about prospective employees. When the employee comes in and exposes himself to that examination, right? that situation allows the person to make... They're not telling their employees any fact about this person. They're saying that, in my opinion, this person is not suited to this job, let's say. Is that, that, that's acceptable. I, I'm not actually... That's not quite the example I'm talking about. It's where the employee is already working within a company and, yeah. say, the director asks the manager yeah. about where, how well the employee is doing their job. It's a very tricky question. In general, he's allowed to give an accurate assessment because it's the, the welfare of the business... Yes, is this, and it's a, it's a tacitly or, or even explicitly accepted part of being an employee that your work is subject to being monitored, that you do what you're supposed to be doing. 
but it gets it can get very difficult and touchy and depa- yeah. so that has to be you have to be very very careful and have ask your local orthodox friend before you um, <laughs> yeah so you mustn't take revenge. How do you account for an eye for an eye? An eye for an eye is... Uh, the, our, our subject's not exactly revenge tonight. An eye for an eye in the Torah means that if you injure someone, you have to pay them exactly the value of the damages. In fact, you have to pay them five categories of damage. The, the Gemara brings very clear proof that it does not mean that you gouge out their eye. It doesn't, and it, the Gemara brings proofs for that and why it's expressed that way. Incidentally, there are times when taking revenge is a mitzvah. There are times when we are commanded to take revenge on the nation of Amalek, for example. It says that it's Hashem's glory when the evil forces in the world are destroyed by the same methods that they try to, to damage the goodness in the world. That can be a mitzvah. All these negative things have a positive application. What have you been after the jury service? I can't answer that now. That's much too complicated because it touches on the law of the land, which is very complicated. You're obliged to obey the law of the land. That gets into the law of what your obligations are to non-Jews. To Jews, sometimes they're more serious, sometimes they're less, more lenient. That's, I can't answer that now. Yes, please. What about in terms of That could be even worse than Lashonara. That's not, that, that could be downright business dishonesty. That could be direct damage. Actually, halakhidi, that's considered indirect damage. So, you know, if they knew the roof was suspect, right. so they're selling you a false, a false, false goods. That's called a makhatos. Halakhically, there's no deal. Halakhically, when you discover that, the deal's undone retroactively. Are you with me? The question there is, is he liable for damages that, is in, that you've incurred along the way? That's a fascinating area, which is called groma. Groma means that you're not the proximate cause of the damage. You're an indirect cause. That means he got damaged through you, but not through your direct action. So halakhically, that's a fascinating... I can't, I can't go into that now. It's a marvelous subject. We can talk about that separately. Yes, please. Can you explain why it was the murder? I'm going to get there. Yes, please. Yeah. We're asking now only on the practicalities. I'm going to try and give you the spiritual background here. Would you a teacher, now that you've got two students? Oh, that's a very good question. A teacher or a parent has to say something about a child, right? Or, or you have to tell a parent about their child. Saying lots and horror about a child is much worse than saying about an adult. If it is lots and horror. And the reason is a child cannot forgive you. Only an adult can forgive. Somebody under Bar Mitzvah is incapable of forgiveness. They don't have dice. They haven't grown into legal majority yet. So again, you can speak about a child if it's necessary. When you go to the Rebbe or the parent and you say your child was misbehaving and you say it accurately, you saw it firsthand, etc., etc. The whole point here is, not, is, is, is to, that the parent should... You're speaking to the one who can correct the child who needs to know. That's an absolute mitzvah. You have to do that. It's between two children and you have to use very good judgment about whether asking the child to tell you about the other child is necessary in that situation. You know, my, uh, my sister was um, her, her, in, in Johannesburg. Her child, um, she, my sister's a radiographer. She was in the x-ray clinic one day when a woman from her own school came in with a child with four broken fingers. Right? And she had an x-ray. What happened was, the child, they were standing outside the classroom and it was locked. So, the, uh, the teacher asked the child to climb in through the window and drop down inside and unlock the door. Then the child climbed through the window and while he was holding on the windowsill, another child outside didn't realize that he was there and slammed the window. Okay? So, he broke four of his fingers. So, the mother said to the child, who was the boy who did it? This child is 11 years old. He said, mommy, 
I'm not, I'm not telling you because it was an accident. It's not necessary for you to know who the child was. Isn't that remarkable? What's the difference? What difference does it make? A child didn't do it vindictively. There's nothing to be corrected. The child didn't know I was there. He wouldn't tell his mother the name of the child. That's remarkable. That's Jewish education. <laughs> so you'll find that in homes, in homes that are fussy, that, that, that make this, you'll find that even very little children are easily trained. They'll often tell you a certain thing happened, they'll tell you they're not going to tell you the name of the person. They know it's wrong. And it's, yeah. What happens if you ask opinion in just a friend? It's not a word, yeah. like it's just, you say you were going out with someone and you knew someone that knew that person. Going out meaning like dating? Or, or even just you know, on a friendship basis. Social basis. basis. On a social so, basis. Yeah, you yeah. And someone asks you, you know that person, what do you think of them? So that's like this. If it's a dating situation, Jewish dating means marriage. I mean, see me privately. Oh, you know, so, so. so, dating, dating's a serious business. Dating's a serious business, right? It's set up from the beginning with a view to marriage. That's why you're dating this person. What other reason would you would you want to? So, um, <laughs> got a long way to go here. Yeah. So, that's a very serious business. If it's a social contact, right, which has got no real particular contractual, marital, you know, uh, other thing, um, that gets a little bit more, more thing. Even in a marital situation, you have to be very, very careful about what you say when it's an opinion. That means that to describe the person's character and what their strengths are and their special, you know, which is what the person wants to know to see if there's compatibility is fine. But it's very dangerous. Because, what, do you understand, the fine line between... <laughs> it's one thing to describe a person's character and bring out all their beautiful points, etc., but it's almost inevitable that there'll be something that's relatively not that good or by implication is not there. And, and implication in Lashon Hari is, is a problem. So you have to really be expert. Shatchanis, that means being in the field of helping people get married and suggesting someone for someone else and so forth, where you really do have to describe the person. It's a very, very delicate halachic area. You really, really have to know your stuff in order to know how to describe a person without transgressing this area. It's best left to experts. Yes, please. So when you say harm to yourself, you mean you mean the, harm you mean no, well, 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 those are two different things. The question here was <coughs> the question here was that. Um, <coughs> If you have some problem and you need to confide it to someone, and because you live in Australia, there's no one around close by who... <laughs> you need to tell someone in order to um, offload, right? Like a cathartic experience, right? In order to share it with them, will make it easier for you to, to handle. Physical harm is a very different thing. If you're telling somebody because you think you're in danger... You definitely have to do that with all the criteria that we mentioned before. But when you're telling somebody in order to offload, it usually is a situation with a counsellor where this is a problem. You come to this counsellor and you, you tell them, this, a lot of counselling is really offloading. That means there will be no real practical advice, and, but it will help to speak about it. At least that's the theory. That's a very, very vexed situation halakhically. The first problem is, is a technical, professional, psychological question. Will it help? Does it really help? There are Jewish sources that make it clear, clear that sometimes 
suppressing it in the correct way may be better than, than giving vent to it and building up a conditioning in terms of, of anger about that thing. That needs very, very careful judgment. But let's, let, let's make an assumption that there may be a situation that telling it over helps. And there certainly are situations like that. Even where there will be no practical you know, advice or outcome. Many halachic authorities who have dealt with this say that if correctly done, that is, a, that is justification. That means the counselor knows that there's very little they'll be able to suggest here. A person's in a marital situation or locked into some situation where there are very, very few options. But being able to share it will take the tension out of that situation. So under those circumstances where therapeutically it's professionally judged that this is positive, where that is the case, and the counsellor refuses to believe the facts, may not believe the facts. You may assume that they may be true to the extent of advising the person, but you may not personally assume that you've seen it firsthand since you didn't. In those circumstances, correctly, with correct guidance, they have been situated. Now you ask about a friend, which is not a counsellor. There's, there's really no Jewish distinction between the professional um, credential. You understand? That's really not an issue. That means that if, it, if, if, if telling it to this friend is the right address and is what will do it, they would, the problem is in practice it's usually not like that. In practice it's usually people are very quick to rationalize that you need to speak about this and it may in fact be helpful but it really is tra- transgressing the problem. You know, it's usually in a more formal setting with a counselor where there's a fee being paid, etc. There's u- usually more um, you know, gu- uh, guards and um, you know, protective mechanisms in place. But in essence, it could be justified. Again, this is that's tiger country. Yes. It's a question of judgment. In fact, all the things that I've mentioned are really questions of judgment. How do you know that the person will get harmed more than is their due? How do you know that they'll take action? How do you know that when you tell this prospective bridegroom about this young girl, how do you know that he may just overlook it because he likes her so much she doesn't think it's significant? How do you know that? These are all questions of judgment. Sometimes you can get outside judgment to help you. Go to a knowledgeable rabbi in this area. You don't have to tell him the names. You can tell him, this is the situation. I have doubts about whether this, you know, this will be the consequences. And thrash it out and come to a conclusion. Are you with me? Yes, please. Not harm, but legal consequences. For ex- Right. What harm do they do? What, what if, I mean, There's no harm yet. In other words, if they did marry the person without telling them, it would be called a mekhtas. That, that's called an invalid deal. You can't contract a marriage where there's a significant deficiency that you didn't tell your prospective spouse about. But let's say that they'll kill them. You understand? Which is certainly not their due. You may not say it. Are you with me? This shopkeeper is selling things that are, that are things. If he's reported, what will happen is he'll have to make up the costs and be sued for damages. Yeah, if you're based in... So that, so that is incident. Good. Are you going to show me a case where it... Are you going to show me a case where it does not apply? Fine, then it doesn't apply. But I would argue that in any case where the person is not being harmed, like for instance, you're saying in a shopkeeper... You're correct. You're correct. In a case like that, then there's no harm due and it's fine. You're right. It doesn't apply. You never tell someone in a situation about... No. Like, for instance, an illness or something like that. The damage that should accrue there is that... The consequence, which word would you like? The consequence that should accrue is that they won't marry them. Fine? Yes? Good. But if they'll shoot them in their knees and break their legs, that's not fair. That's, that's more than, yes? That may be excessive. So why should there be any harm to you when it's not the fault of having... It may not be. 
There may not be, but this would apply in a situation where there is, like in a shop, where there's a legal consequence. And they're going to get damaged beyond what the basin will imply, then you're not allowed to do it. If you can come up with a situation for me that doesn't apply, then it doesn't apply. These don't always all apply. Yeah, any other question? Something that I can answer? Yes. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Provided, you know, it's not clear to the one about... Yes? Are you with me? You say, like, I'm engaged to this person. You know? <laughs> but if they're not identifiable, that's fine. There's no, there's no loss of no being said about that person. And you're doing it for a purpose. Incidentally, there's another exception that is often quoted that you should try not to use. And that is when three people know about it already. That's called apetlosa. That means you're telling someone something that is already public knowledge. Public knowledge in Jewish terms is that three people know. Right? When three people know about it already, then the Chavetz Chaim brings opinions that say that it is not technically Lashon Hara, because Lashon Hara is only when you say something that, that wasn't known or wouldn't be known. But when you say something that's already been published, and everybody knows about it, you are, he says you still should not do it, and brings very strong opinions that it's prohibited. But you will find this quoted, and therefore, and therefore you... Uh, why three? Why three? Why not two? One arbitrary number of three? So there it's interesting, the post can say, it's fascinating logic. The logic is that if I tell, if there are only two of us, if there are only two of us, I definitely won't tell this information. Because since there's only one other person, if this knowledge gets out, they'll definitely know it was me. I won't, I won't do that. But if there are three people, they'll never know it was me, maybe it's the other person. So therefore there's less inhibition for the, for the one of three than there is for one of two. You understand? That's why, that's why, that's why two will still remain a secret. But when they're three already, it's assumed that it will get out. But you shouldn't use this. It's not good. It's not good for you to say bad things about people. It's just not good. It's just bad. It's just negative. It builds a negative... You shouldn't be doing that. You should be building positivity in the world. You shouldn't be going out there reporting negative things about people to others. It's just not... You shouldn't do it. Yes, please. Rabbi Ted, what about thinking? Thinking's not a prohibition of national. You've got nothing for a thought. No, it's not national. Lashonara means it gets spoken out in the world. It's not good to think bad thoughts about people. It's not good for you and it's not good for the world. And there's some thoughts that you get punished for worse than actions. And that's when we, when we are so terrified of this subject that we can't stand. <laughs> then we'll talk about that. that. You have to know the parameters, but it's not Lashonara. Lashonara is making known. Yes, please. Why does Lashonara take it so seriously? I haven't got there yet. Do you mind? I mean, as soon as we deal with the practicalities, I'll try and get there. Yes, can we do that? deal with that now? Yes, yes. If I was a journalist, yes. right, you should not be a journalist. Let's revise that. If you're a journalist who wants to repeat, you want to give over the talk, you, 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 you report on Jewish events around town. You go to kosher Jewish events around town and you report it, right? Great. So all you have to do is take the text of the speech and you report it to Shira Noshnara. What's on it? If you comment about the quality of the speaker, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, please. Excellent question. Excellent. A little bit of. The question is, can husband? Yeah. 
can husband and wife speak to each other things that are Lash and Hora? Absolutely not. Even though it's absolutely clear the Chobetz Chaim makes it clear. Even though husband and wife are considered one body, it says, Ishtoike Gufo, his wife is like his body, you may not speak Lash and Hora to your wife. Absolutely out of the question. With all the same parameters. You have to tell your husband about a child for, because he needs to know to correct the child, etc., etc., then it has to be done. But no, there's, no, there's no dispensation for husband and wife or parents and children or any relationship at all. It makes absolutely no difference. begin our marriage enrichment course. <laughs> Saying about a child, incidentally, the, uh, I mentioned that because a child is not of legal age, cannot forgive. But it's well known that um, the Stifler was a great, a great uh, Torah authority in Israel. I had the privilege of meeting him a couple of times. The Stifler was an amazing, amazing giant in Torah. It's well known that once he was in shul when a, a, a young child, seven-year-old boy, was, um, the stipler saw him reading during davening, during the tefillah, he saw him reading a, a, big, a big book. It didn't look like a siddur. So he thought he was learning. He thought he was learning instead of praying, instead of davening. So the stipler walked up to him and he, he remonstrated. He, he um, admonished the child. He said, this is the time for davening, not for learning. The child showed him it was a big siddur. In other words, he had criticized him wrongly. Okay? Seven years later, the stifler arrived at the child's bar mitzvah. You know what? You understand that? He walked into this strange child's bar mitzvah. People, like one of the greatest men of the generation, like walked into this bar mitzvah. He went up to the child and asked him for forgiveness for having criticized him seven years before. He'd been anxious for seven years, right? Because this child couldn't forgive him. But Moshe Feinstein once, he's also well known in New York, he once walked into Shul. He's a great Rosh Hashiva. Moshe Feinstein probably the greatest halachic mind of the of, of our generation. He walked into shul and there was a seven-year-old child sitting in his seat. And Rabbi Moshe, in a gentle way, a gentle fatherly way, he wanted to take something out of his seat or, and the child realized that he was sitting in a... and the child moved. But there was a possibility that the child was embarrassed because he'd been sitting in Rabbi Feinstein's seat. He arrived at his bar mitzvah six years later and as soon as the boy stepped down from his aliyah, Rabbi Moshe walked up to him in front of everybody and he asked him for forgiveness in case he hurt his feelings. When he was seven years old, six years before. I can't understand these things. Yes, please. Can one speak about himself? That's an excellent question. There are sources that indicate very clearly that you can't speak Lashonara about yourself. It's debatable halachically exactly what it's... There's a famous story about the Chavetz Chaim. They tell... Uh, some say it's not corroborated. But there's a famous story that he was once traveling on a train when a young man was sitting in the same compartment as him. Now, there were no photo photographs, if, even if there were, those people didn't read the newspapers, and there weren't photographs. So he didn't know who this old man was. And the Chavetz Chaim was very humble. He used to wear, uh, like a wagon driver's sort of a cap. But he didn't look, he was a very, very humble and small individual. The Chavetz Chaim, in a very friendly way, said to this young man, where are you going? So he said, I'm going to see the greatest man of our generation, the Chavetz Chaim. <laughs> so the Chavetz Chaim said, no, I don't know if he's the greatest man. <laughs> so this young man said, what are you saying? He's the greatest The Chavetz Chaim said, he's not that great. 
so he was so incensed this young man he walked over and slapped him <laughs> so the Chodesh Chaim said nothing later when, they, when he arrived in Radin the young man came in for an audience with the Chodesh Chaim he saw who was the Chodesh Chaim okay the Chodesh Chaim said to him calm down I learned from that incident that you shouldn't speak last night about yourself <laughs> so, it, it's not clear that it's, it's corroborated that story or not but that's an interesting halachic question that needs more, that more analysis I mean, in general terms, you should certainly not say bad things about yourself that are true. Why should, why, why, why should you do that? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's it. Can we move on? Okay. Fascinating subject, right? Essential. Have to study. Now, <clears throat> you have a choice here, okay? The next, the next section, we can do two things. We can close now, and next week, in Sashem, we'll discuss the spiritual background. I think that's wise. No, it's late already. Yes? Let's do it properly next week. No? So let's do it like this. Let's summarize what we set up to now. I'll summarize the questions for you. You'll have a week to chew over. Okay, this very, very fascinating area. Next week, Mr. Shem, we will not deal with the practicalities. I'll try to share with you simply the, um, the very deep <coughs> background here to what speech is and why Lashon Hora goes back to the original problem, yes, the, the, when, 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 when Eve, when Chava was confronted by the serpent, right, he said things to her that were negative but true, and that's where the problem began. And this follows its way throughout the whole Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu throws the staff down, it becomes that serpent, that happens to him because he said Lashonara about the Jewish people. This, this problem of Lashonara goes throughout the whole Torah, and it is the pre-Messianic problem, and it's the key to everything, and that needs understanding. So what we need to think about during the week is, first and foremost, the practicalities. But you can get a very, very user-friendly books in English that could not be easier to begin studying the practical application of this question. It pervades all aspects of one's expression, and I didn't begin to cover. I began this evening. We began. But we only just began the subject. You need to go through many practical situations and examine them and see, surprisingly, about how easy it can be to transgress this area. The second thing is to think deeply for this week about what is the... Why is this a key? Why does this hold the key to everything else? Why, why is all other punishment, as it were, all other consequence, why is it contingent upon this particular problem of saying some negative things? So, if we will think about that during the week, in session next week, we'll try to analyze this question in detail.